Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. Our speaker this evening received a PhD in philosophy from the Catholic University of America in 1997. Dr. John Cutterback writes and lectures on various topics including virtue, culture, natural law, contemplation, and friendship. A third order lay Dominican, he currently teaches in the philosophy department at Christendom College. His book, True Friendship, Where Virtue Becomes Happiness, was republished in 2010. Dr. Cutterback also writes for his blog titled Bacon from Acorns, in which he publishes his own reflections on philosophy and the household. I like to skip past the acorns and go straight to the bacon, but I'm not as civilized as Dr. Cutterback. Dr. Cutterback, an avid gardener and hunter, lives with his wife and six children in the Shenandoah Valley. He's a frequent speaker for the ICC as well as one of our Magdala Apostolate professors. Please join me in giving a warm welcome to Dr. John Cutterback. Um, I, I have to say that there is nothing like walking into an ICC event. I, I, it's, it's, to, to what can I compare it? It's, it's, like, it's like coming home. Um, I, I mean, where, um, truly, you, you all are so um, welcoming and just alive with the spirit. It is um, in, uh, times where there's a lot to be discouraged about, it's nice uh, to keep a perspective. There's always more to be encouraged about than there is to be discouraged about. And that's, that's, that's good for us to bear in mind. Well, we, um, what in the world brought you? <laughs> I don't think you came to hear about nominalism. I really don't. I think, I think I think the word about that lasagna got out, and, and <laughs> free lasagna at that. And uh, if there were free lasagna like that near my home, I'd probably sit through and lecture on nominalism also. <laughs> um, so um, I, I'm going to ask you to, uh, to be patient. Uh, be patient with me, and uh, be patient with yourselves. We, we have before us a, 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 a tough topic. And uh, I, so I had to try to make some judgments as to what to try to do here. A danger in studying and teaching is to pretend that you understand something when you don't. And before talking about the errors of nominalism, it, it, it's important that we make a shot at trying to understand something about what it is. And, and I, I have a very deep conviction that sometimes it's a little bit too easy, I'll just say in our situation, to kind of fall into a pointing fingers at bad guys and saying, okay, you know, there's, there's the problem, or these are the people whose fault it is. 
kind of approach. And of course, we do have to try to find there is, there is a kind of order to error. And there is a causality that has brought us in various ways to where we are, although it's almost always more complex than we realize. So let's, let's just try to um, moderate our expectations here. I hope that we get some sense of what this philosophical school called nominalism is and some sense of what's at stake in it. All right? it interestingly, I'll say a little bit more about this later. You, you're not going to bump into in general, people to now that say, well, I'm a nominalist. <laughs> what do you think of that? You know? um, by and large, those that went by the name lived a very long time ago. So we're, really, we're going back to something that fascinatingly arose in a context where Christian philosophy was very much alive. And so I struggle to understand this. One of the most famous nominalist in history was a Franciscan friar. And so it, it's important that you not think that, okay, when you say nominalists, you're, you're thinking these are people that were trying to destroy uh, your worldview. Although I think that you can say in many ways nominalism had an important hand in destroying your worldview. <laughs> and, and so it's a, it's, it's, it's a serious matter, but we're going to try not to jump to conclusions. What I'd like to do is um, start with one, one teacher that we're going to use tonight is Etienne Gilson. He was one of the great uh, medievalists of the 20th century. And he um, begins with a very beautiful statement here about St. Thomas Aquinas and what made him be such a great thinker. And I just I want to open with that, and then we're, we're going to move on and look at the problem. So a couple opening thoughts. We're going to look at the problem of universals to which nominalism is one answer. And then we're going to look at a couple other answers to the problem of universals. And then we're going to talk about various consequences of nominalism and what it might mean for us and why we might want to be aware of it. This is my first quotation. St. Thomas Aquinas was clear-sighted enough to know the truth when he saw it humble enough to bow to it in its presence. His holiness and his philosophy sprang from the same source, more than human eagerness to give way to truth. The thing that I, I, I particularly love about this beautiful point is it's, it, it's pointing to a fundamental insight, a fundamental truth about human nature. It's the humble person, and the humble person alone who's going to see the truth. It's so easy for us to say that. It's another thing to do it. What, what does humility in action mean? I just want to kind of throw the challenge at you. How often, in reality, if we are self-reflexive, God grants us the ability to understand ourselves better. Give me a man who understands himself, who's really able to look at himself and see. This is a rare and powerfully beautiful thing. But if we're really able to look at ourselves and understand how often we are not willing to see things as they are. And we modify how we see things through how we want things to be.
And so the, the, the beautiful thing that Gilson is capturing about St. Thomas is what it took to be clear-sighted was the amazing clarity of a rectified appetite, of good desire, of the willingness to always say, I will want what I should want. I will change what I want when I see the truth of what I should want. That's what I'll want. And then you have the clarity to be able to see that Joseph Pieper, another great 20th century Thomas, wrote a book called The Silence of St. Thomas. The word silence is a very beautiful, rich term. It, it, it captures a lot of rich things. But, but part of the silence, I dare say, essential to the silence of St. Thomas is the silence of having ordered desires, of having ordered desires so that you're able to humbly see things as they are, including ourselves. How often we don't see ourselves for who we are because we don't really want to, though that, that doesn't sometimes even come to the level of consciousness. So how few in the history of thought have been like a St. Thomas Aquinas? There's this amazing connection. There's plenty of people who are brilliant. The world ha ha has a large, large number of people who are brilliant. It has, there's a real shortage of people who are humble, right? who really then have insight. That what we really need, and there's a great place in the church for the likes of Thomas Aquinas, who was brilliant, brilliant beyond most anything you'll ever see, and combined with that, this astounding humility. So we go to him as a particular teacher. Still, it doesn't mean that he, that he always got it right. But in any case, he is going to be our teacher here tonight. And just so you know, by my saying that, I'm not implying that the nominalists weren't humble enough. This is all, this is all part of God's providence. There are many thinkers that, that in various ways we all sh fall short. It's, something, it's another reason to always come back to humility. Always, always be careful about assuming that you've got it just right. I'm not suggesting a skepticism here. There's always this incredible balance. Have confidence in what, we, in what we do know. Don't become a skeptic. At the same time, always humility. Always be careful. Always be willing to see that we haven't seen well enough. So when we talk here about the error of, errors of nominalism, another quick distinction I want to point out, not necessarily the errors of nominalists. Sometimes thinkers have a worldview where they themselves don't see the logical consequences of their own worldview. So at times you don't want to blame someone for certain consequences that come from his thought, for at times he didn't see that that was a consequence. Can't we all see that in our own lives? That sometimes we didn't realize there's certain consequences to things that we were holding. So when you hear, oh my goodness, well, the main nominalist was this Franciscan friar. I mean, how could he have done this to us? You're barking up the wrong tree. Our interest is not to judge persons. Our interest here ultimately is to look at the logical consequences of the thought, but always be prepared to separate the thought from the thinker, right? Because you never know exactly what's going on subjectively in the thinker. So be very slow to condemn thinkers, but we do sometimes have to condemn certain thought. 
All right, so here we're, and I'm saying, I'm starting that because we're talking about the errors of nominalism. I'm glad we're talking about the errors of nominalism, not necessarily of nominalists. All right, with that as a little bit of uh, background, let's jump in. The first thing I'm going to do in, in, in here, this one I'm going to say, be patient with yourself, be patient with me. I mean, really, to do this right, we'd be, we'd be taking a, a, a number of hours to try to set this problem up. I'm going, to, so I'm, going to, I'm going to give you whatever it's going to be, a 10 or 15 minute sketch, just to try to give you a sense of what's going on. And then again, we're, we're, we're going to turn from there. We're going, to, we're going to do our best. The next quotation here from Gilson sets the tone here, um, gives you a sense of how big this is. It has often been said by historians, and not without good reason, that the whole philosophy of the Middle Ages was little more than an obstinate endeavor to solve one problem the problem of the universals. Universals are but another name for what we call concepts or general ideas. All right, so here he's, he's setting up for us. This really was at the center of one of the greatest, if not the greatest, ages of Christian thought. They were great thinkers trying to solve the problem that I'm about to present to you. But frankly, it gives you a sense of how hard it is to come to the right answer. It's very hard to see what the problem is. And of course, you're never going to get the right answer if you haven't first seen what the problem is. So I'm going to try to say a little bit about what the problem is, give you a sense of the different answers, and then we're going to go from there. So next, I'm going to read to you Gilson's shot at setting up what the problem itself is. So it's being called the problem universals. Again, name nominalism is going to name one school of thought in giving an answer to this problem. First, I'm going to try to tell you what the philosophical problem is. My next quotation. What relation is there between thought and things? More particularly, and to ask the same question in specifically medieval terms, how is it that in a world where all that is real is a particular and individual thing, the human mind is able to distribute the manifold of reality into classes in which particular things are contained. That such an operation is possible is an obvious fact. Man is constantly thinking in terms of genera and species. That's just broad kinds of things. But how it is possible always was and still remains for us a very intricate problem. The great significance, we're not going to particularly talk about Peter Abelard, there's a very famous thinker as regards this problem. The great significance of Peter Abelard in the history of medieval philosophy is due to the fact that he was the first to deal at length with the central problem. What is a class of things? Or in other words, what is the essence of universality? All right, now I'm going to try my best to kind of put that in my own words, give you an example or two. The first, often to see a problem, you have to say, all right, given this and given this, we've got a problem. So we're going to start with something that basically everybody on all sides of answering the problem agrees with, and that's this first statement. What exists in the real world are particular individual substances and their parts and their principles. So this, this is kind of a neat point. There isn't anything out there that exists other than individual 
particular things. All right, so you've, you've, you've got a door, you've got a table, you've got a window, you've got a person, you've got the floor, you've got the air, you've got the water in your cup, you've got the whatever. The world is peopled with individual substances. Now there's parts of those substances, my hand, my foot, part of the door, part of the water. You can also refer to principles in those substances. We're not going to sweat this right now. Principle and part don't always mean the same thing. We'd call my soul a principle of me, but you wouldn't really call it a part of me in the way that you would my foot. But in any case, the first point here is the world is made up of individual, particular substances. There isn't anything else but that. All right. Now the next thing is concepts are universals. So what you're going to see here is the word universal in general is the opposite of particular. Particular, universal. So if the world is made up of particular things, how are there going to be universals? Already here you're starting to see what's the problem of universals. Well, it's obvious from experience that we have what are called universals or concepts, but how can there be universals or concepts given that the world is made up simply of individual things? Here's the logical definition, ladies and gentlemen, of a universal. What can be predicated of many? I'm going to try to keep the terminology as simple as I can. What can be predicated of many? You could scratch out the word predicate and say what can be said of many. The verb predicate just means to say something. It comes like the predicate in a sentence. So if I say this is a tree, I am predicating tree of this. All right? So a universal is what can be predicated of many. So watch. The term tree is a universal. Why? Because you can say, this is a tree, and this is a tree, and this is a tree. The term tree is a universal. It is said of or predicated of many things. So right off the bat, part of the problem here is, what exactly is tree? It's very easy to point to trees, but can you point to tree? What is a universal? We use them all the time. There are these terms. Terms are closely connected to concepts. I have a concept of tree. So here's a little logic for you. Given that I have a concept of tree, I can then, according to that understanding I have of the tree way of being, I can say, that's a tree, that's a tree, that's a tree. Let's take another one, man. Man is a universal. I have a concept of man. And so I can say, here's a man, here's a man, here's a man, here's a man. But what is man? In reality, what you have are a bunch of individuals that you are taking one name and applying the identical name to all of them. So this is the big question. Again, you, you take this so much for granted. Remember, remember, philosophers take things that you take for granted and they turn it into a problem, all right? 
I wish I could say they were paid a lot to do it, but they're not. They're paid something to take what you take for granted and then turn it into a problem. All right, so we all know that we have all these universal terms that you apply to many individuals. But what allows you to use one term of all those same things? So watch. We take this term man and we apply it. I'm using man in the old-fashioned way that can be predicated of a woman. All right? So you can, you can say man of whatever, 175 people in this room. Why do we use the same term for all these individuals? What there are in this room are a whole bunch of individuals. But we've taken this term and we're applying the same term to all of them. What is it pointing to? It would seem that it is pointing to something that is the same between them all, something that is in common between them all. But what exactly could possibly be in common between all the things in this room? Indeed, it, should, it would have to be, in some sense, some one thing. What one thing captured by that term man could possibly be in common to all these things in the room? All right, I'm just trying to set up the problem for you. So we first have that first proposition that what the world is made up of a bunch of particular individual things. But we have these concepts that are universals. It's obvious that we use them. So the universal can be predicated of many. The question is, why can it be predicated of many? Now, for starters, it seems we can say this. The universal doesn't name something as a particular unique individual, as, for instance, the name John Cutterback does. John Cutterback is not a universal, right? You can't predicate it of many. Even if there's another John Cutterback in the world, and there's a few, that does not make it be a universal, because you don't predicate it of us all in the same way. This is why we try to all have different names as individuals. So when you point to someone as an individual, you do not use a universal term, right? So our names, George, Sam, even if there's more than one George, you know, then you'll throw in a middle initial or whatever, those are not universals. Those are not universals. All right. But universal terms are pointing to something not as an individual, the way the name John Cutterback points to me as an individual. But rather, we take a name like tree or man, what's it pointing to? Rather, those things as sharing something in common. So it seems, by common sense, it would seem that there must be something real in common between all these many different things. But what exactly is that? I'm back on the handout right now. So one seemingly obvious answer would be where to where does the generality, where does the generality or the universality of your concept come from? The generality of the concept comes from our minds. So how do you get a, a concept how do you get the term man that can be applied to many? Well, because your mind is able to do that. 
your mind can take one term and say, you know what? I'm going to use the same term for all those things out there. So it seems that the universality of your universals comes from the mind. I'm back on the handout. But if this is simply so, that the generality of concepts is only from the mind, then it would follow that there's nothing in reality that corresponds to those concepts. Why? Their generality is simply fabricated but by the mind. But there's no generality in reality. Right, now we're moving towards what nominalism is going to say. Now a possible answer to this further problem. The mind makes general ideas in order more conveniently to refer to individual things by grouping them together. So why does the mind make universal terms? Well, for the sake of convenience. Not because necessarily that there's something in the things that the same, but we just like to group things together because that's more convenient. But this leaves unanswered. Is there a basis in reality for that grouping? The fundamental realist conviction, now I'm starting to set up, there's going to be two main ways to answer it, and you're going to see this as we flip over the, the uh, page here. The fundamental realist conviction is that there must be some basis in the reality for these groupings. There must be something real and common between all the individuals of a kind. Gilson expresses this nicely in the next quotation I put here. So here he's starting to say the realist conviction. Realism, ladies and gentlemen, is going to be the opposite of nominalism. Since the human mind is able to apply a single concept to two different objects, indeed many different, there must be something in those objects that makes it possible for us to conceive them as one. There must be something real and common that's the same. I'm going on here on the handout. The big question is, what is it in those objects that makes it possible for us to group them together, to conceive them as one. Porphyry, I'm going to give you a little quotation here, the very early commentator on Aristotle, on Aristotle's logic. This was in the third century AD. He made the following remarkable comment. I shall refuse to say concerning genera and species, things like man, bird, animal, living, non-living. These are all universal terms, right? You can, you can apply living. This is living. This is living. This is living. Living is a universal term. It's a broad genus. All right? I shall refuse to say concerning genera and species whether they subsist or whether they are placed in the naked understanding alone or whether subsisting they are corporeal or incorporeal. Questions of this sort are most exalted business and require very great great diligence of inquiry. So what is the reality of a universal? The universal itself seems to not be an individual thing. What is this thing called tree? What is living? What is human? This great, he was a great logician. Porphyry said, said that's a deep metaphysical question. A logician can do his whole logic thing 
and not have to answer that question? That's a very deep philosophical question. Well, as the Middle Ages went on, they came to see this, this is going to require a great answer. And this was the big fight. What is the reality behind these universal terms? Any universal term whatsoever that you use. All right. So what I've done here on the backside, some major answers to the problem. Number one and number two. The first major position is there is, in fact, nothing real in things themselves that is a basis for universals. There's, in fact, nothing real in common between all those individual things that we take some universal term and apply that term to. That is nominalism. Nominalism, at least in its strongest, most pure form, holds that, that there's nothing real in things that is a basis for universals. Naming an extreme nominalist, one of the er earliest on is a man named Rosalind in the late 11th and early 12th century. This is before St. Thomas Aquinas. He's a contemporary of the aforementioned Abelard, who's also going to be a nominalist. Universals, Rosalind holds, are merely spoken words which are applied to many. So, what's Rosalind saying? The term tree. All it is is a word that we say that we then apply to many. The term man. All it is is a word that we say that we apply to a bunch of men. All that exists in reality are individuals with all of their individuality. Yes, we use universals. Nobody denies that there are terms that humans use as universals. The question is, does anything in reality correspond to it? Rosalind here is an extreme of saying absolutely not. That is the extreme of nominalism. Note, I go on. There are more moderate forms of nominalism that seek to give some account for why the same term can be applied to many. The immediate question that you, if you're following, I know it's tough, if you are with me there, you're saying, well, how would Rosalind answer this question? Why do you take the term man and only apply it to these individuals and not those individuals if it's not naming something specific in them? <coughs> did that make sense? Yeah. Did you, did you? Okay. So, so Rosalind does not have a good answer to that question. He simply doesn't. So the extreme form of nominalism is kind of a, a rather extreme silliness of we use these universal terms, but there's no basis in reality for doing so, which just, well, then why, why we do it? Well, just for convenience sake to group them together, but to group them together, why would you group these together and not those together? There are more, su there are more subtle forms of nominalism, ladies and gentlemen, I go on. Note, there are more moderate forms of nominalism that seek to give some account for why the same term can be applied to many. Holding, for instance, that it is because, A, there is a real resemblance between things though not a sameness. So some nominalists will hold, okay, all these things that you call men, they're kind of like one another. There's nothing absolutely the same between them. They're just kind of like one another, so we use the same term for them. There's still not something in reality that absolutely corresponds to the term man. You see, you take that universal term man, and you apply it to all these things that are kind of like one another, so you've put them together in the same group or put them together in the same set because it was convenient to do so, not because there's something in reality that actually makes them be one in some sense. 
be closely related to that. These things differ from each other less than from other things. That's kind of a clever one right there. <laughs> All men differ from one another less than they differ from other things. It's kind of a clever way of saying, you know, there's a reason that you use the same term for all of them, but it's a way of avoiding saying that there's something really the same in them. And now, right now, this is where you start to ask yourself, why are they trying so hard to avoid saying that there's something real in common between them? Well, let me tell you something. I mean, w when you get to this level, the, the point, it's because it's extremely difficult to say what it is that in reality is the same between them. What would the metaphysical status be of this sameness between individuals? So I'm going to go, oh, um, let me just see. There was a couple more lines that I'll read. There are numerous positions that seek to give an account of why we can use universal terms while still ultimately holding. There can be no common reality, no common nature. This is a term I'm going to start using a lot. Natures. It's natures, particularly, ladies and gentlemen, that are going to go out the window with nominalism. The human nature is the name for something that the realists are going to hold is the same in reality between all men that the term man is referring to when you predicate the term man of somebody. So fundamentally, any, any anomalous is, is going to ultimately hold that there can be no common reality, no common nature in things that share the same nature. All right, second position, another way of answering the question. The universal terms refer to something real in things, something that is somehow common to many. There is something real that is the same that's shared by the many individuals. This position is called realism when you're speaking of the problem of universals. Now, the term realism can show up in other things. You can talk about a realist versus an idealist. That's a different use of the terms. When you refer to a realist in the context of the problem of universals, it's a realist versus a nominalist. All right, so Plato. Plato, ladies and gentlemen, is a realist. He's an all-flags-flying realist. <laughs> Universals, he goes so far as to say this. Here's, I mean, if you ever read, I mean, Plato, I love Plato. I mean, he, he certainly has some issues. But what was Plato's fundamental insight? There are these unchanging natures that are always there that all humans have in common. He, indeed, he holds this so strongly, he holds them that they exist in a separate world of forms. There they are. Those are the universals. This, this, this great man at the beginning of philosophy very strongly holds, you bet there are these unchanging natures that the intellect can fasten upon. These are the great unchanging forms of things. The form of man, the form of water, the form of justice, the form of good. These are the things that are the basis for your using any of these terms. They exist in a separate world where they are unchanging. Now here's the thing. You're kind of like, oh, whew. Good thing that someone like Plato realized that there are these things that give the basis for you using these terms. But look what Plato had to do to be a realist. Plato, what's human nature? Well, it's that unchanging human nature out there in the separate world where then it's just kind of out there and there's human nature. As though you could kind of go and bump into it. Oh, there's human nature. 
That's realism right there. That's not nominalism, folks. But that's a big fat problem because common sense is going to say, ultimately, there's not human nature sitting out there somewhere. It's true. It's not just sitting out there somewhere. Because, what was our first point? All that exists are individuals. You don't have human nature sitting out there, so Plato's a realist. All right. William of Champeau died 1121. He held that universals are substances that are common to many individuals. All right. Here's the thing. He takes the key Aristotelian term substance. Now, you know, you're a substance, I'm a substance, a tree's a substance. William of Champeau, good Aristotelian. He's trying to solve the problem of universals. He wants to be a realist. So what's he do? He says, well, what, what does my term man corresponds to in, th in things? Well, um, it's got to be a substance. So there's some substance that's the human substance that's in common to all human beings. All, all I'm going to say right now, ladies and gentlemen, is that's catastrophic. It doesn't work because substances are always individuals. So actually Abelard came along right at this point and, and he hears Champeau thinking, is that what you have to do to be a realist? What is going to be your account for what it is in reality that's the same between all these individual things? Now this is where I'm going to ask you to give the philosophers credit. There has to be an answer to this question, and I'm going to leave this go. Right now, I'm going to tell you what St. Thomas's answer is, and you're kind of going to go, oh, and, and we're going to leave it at that. But all I want to say to you is this. This is just one of those moments where you just say to yourself, okay, not everyone needs to see this, but somebody does need to see it. Because if you have, if you have people over here who are saying, if you want to hold that there are real natures, you have to be able to give some type of rational account of how that's so. And then we over here are, are just kind of saying, well, no, we're sure, but we don't have any rational account. We just really want to hold this. That just doesn't, that just doesn't cut it. There's going to have to be some type of rational account. And the likes of us, Thomas Aquinas are very well aware of that. All right. So, ladies and gentlemen. I'm going to read you a sentence that is my one-sentence summary of how St. Thomas answers this question because we've spent enough time on this, we have to start to talk about what difference it makes anyway. I hope you've gotten a little taste of, of the issue, a little taste of the problem, a little taste of how great men, you know, it's so easy, us moderns, we look back on, on, on people in the Middle Ages and, and how many moderns might tend to go this. They were really worried about that, like, wasn't there poverty or something to worry about, you know, as opposed to the problem of universals? And all I'm going to say, ladies and gentlemen, is if there's no answer to the problem of universals, we've got much bigger problems than poverty. And it's just so. Here's St. Thomas's answer. The essence, that, that nature that all share in common of whether it's the human kind, the tree kind, the animal kind, the justice kind, Quick, Paul, I wanted to give this example. Yeah, I love Plato, the, the, the realist. He spends so much time on what's piety? One of his great dialogues called Euthyphro. What is piety? The Republic. What is justice? What in every instance of justice is the same? There must be something the same between all instances of justice. Otherwise, your, the word justice is meaningful, meaningless. And how would you ever be able to determine what is just or not just if there's not something that's the same between every instance of justice. 
And you've got to figure out what that is, or there'll be no justice. Right? Plato saw that, but again, so he popped justice out there in the separate world of forms. What, what for St. Thomas is any universal essence? The essence exists in the individual as a real principle. He termed principle, it's not a substance, it can't be a substance. The essence exists in the individual as a real principle, which is individuated by matter. All instances of this principle in things are specifically the same while numerically different. Ladies and gentlemen, there is a boatload of wisdom in that sentence I just read you. And I, I'm not going to ask you to take it on faith. The neat thing is, I'm just telling you, St. Thomas understands what he's saying when he says those words. And the rest of us just kind of go, ooh. <laughs> but I'm just, I'm just going to say this much, this whole beautiful thing of there is something real in me that is specifically the same as something in you while being numerically different, meaning it's different instances. So it is the same, but it is different. Human nature is something real. You and I are the same. If we're not the same, then we're not the same. And that makes all the difference in the world. If as a result of evolution, we've just kind of come along where we're just kind of our own little individual thing that's kind of like the others around us, but we aren't the same, then you're not going to have a morality, ladies and gentlemen. You're not going to have the teleology of things having a purpose where they fulfill their nature and become what they were designed to be. You're not going to have an order of the universe at which to wonder if there's not something the same, real, in you and in me and between all other kinds of things, between this instance of justice and that instance of justice. And this instance of hatred and that instance of hatred. And this instance of love and that instance of love. All of these things, there must be a, sa a sameness. Does love name something real? Love is a universal. Is just every instance of it absolutely different than every other instance of it? Then what exactly are you trying to cultivate in yourself? So there has to, there has to be some realness. All right. Sorry, I just got myself a little work up there. All right. So now what we're going to do, ladies and gentlemen, is go on to what's at stake. And it's our, last, it's our last section. It's hard to convey, ladies and gentlemen, what is lost when we lose confidence in the intellect's ability to fasten on the natures of things. This is so foundational. Nominalism, in fact, pulls the carpet out of everything. And so it's difficult to start to point to little particular things. I'm going to try to, I'm going to, try to capture for you what's at stake and say a couple things about human nature. The very intelligibility, intelligibility means knowability, the intelligibility of the world and our life in it is at stake. There is not an accidental connection, ladies and gentlemen, between 
broadly a nominalist approach to reality and the absolute confusion and purposelessness that we find ourselves in now. Consider, Aristotle sees us humans as rational animals. That's his definition of human nature, rational animals. The term rational and the term animal are both themselves universals that have to point to something the same. Together, they constitute what is a man. All right, Aristotle sees us as rational animals. Our rationality, ladies and gentlemen, is not only what sets us apart from other animals, it's also what gives meaning to our existence, according to Aristotle. Here are a couple of fundamental points about human nature I want you to bear in mind for us to see the points here. The lower in us humans serves the higher. The lower in us humans serves the higher. There is a teleological ordering. Teleology means acting towards an end, acting towards a fulfillment. There's a teleological ordering wherein lower powers find their fulfillment in higher powers. I love to say this to my students in the human nature course. You don't understand all the powers you have as a human being until you understand how they all ultimately find their meaning in your rationality. I'll put it to you this way, ladies and gentlemen. There's no reason to be able to walk if you're not rational. There's no reason to be able to eat if you're not rational. There's no reason to be able to hear if you're not rational. The meaning of everything in your life, all of the lower powers of human nature come from, are ordered to your ability to be a rational person. So if rationality, ladies and gentlemen, is threatened, boom, who you are is profoundly threatened. Another quick point about human nature. Our highest powers then are our intellect and our will, our will which flows from our intellect. Basic, basic Aristotelian Thomistic point. Two highest powers, intellect and will, but your will is your rational appetite. It flows out from your intellect. I'm pointing that out here because if we're going to undermine the intellect, we're going to undermine the will. And I'm going to move quickly to try to try to show you that. At the end of the day, ladies and gentlemen, what does our intellect do? Here's just kind of a straight, beautiful insight of the philosophical and theological tradition that we stand in. What does our intellect do? It must be conformed to reality. Your intellect is made to be conformed to reality. It comes to know the truth by being conformed to reality, by being formed by what is out there. In a sense then, says Aristotle so wonderfully and beautifully, by our intellect we can become all things. By our intellect being conformed to what is out there, we can in a sense take everything out there in and have it and be it. Here's a beautiful point from, from St. Thomas that I, I love, it's worth meditating on. He says, God couldn't make you so that you had the perfection of all things in your nature. Only he can have all perfections in himself by his nature. But he can give you an intellect whereby, in a sense, then you can have all things by knowing them. Can I, can I say, say that again? Did you kind of feel that? He can't, give you, he can't give you all perfections in your nature. Only he could have all perfections in his nature. But he can give you an intellect. 
and by having an intellect, you are, in a sense, able to have all things by knowing them. I mean, think, think go, go right to the top. Go right to the top, ladies and gentlemen. Think, think ultimately, what, what is, what's our Christian understanding of what the perfection of human nature is? When you will see the greatest, as St. Gregory the Great says, what do you not see when you see him who sees all things? So in a sense, you become like unto God himself by your having this intellect that can be conformed to the way things are, take in the way things are. All right, so bottom line here. Natures, these stable ways of being that are shared by many individuals, they are what the intellect most of all grasps. This is how we know what things are. Ladies and gentlemen, what an incredible joy it is. I just spent a whole semester with my freshman at Christendom studying human nature. We spent a whole semester studying something that if nominalism is true, is not there. <laughs> we were studying precisely and only something that everybody in this room absolutely has in common and is the same in all of us. It must be the same in all of us. Otherwise, we are not human together. That's what we've been studying. This is the type of thing that the intellect must be able to fasten itself upon, but it must be conformed to the way things are out there. Our intellect works by discovering those things and forming universal concepts that corresponds to them. What happens, ladies and gentlemen, if you can't have confidence that there's a real distinction between birds and bees, between living things and non-living things? between rational things and non-rational things. Ladies and gentlemen, we are losing these distinctions. Look at the world around us, those who claim that we aren't different from the animals. These things start to all meld together. Note, I don't think there is anybody who can actually consistently live as though there's no such thing as human knowledge. Nominalism ultimately can't really be consistent because you can't really live as though the intellect doesn't know anything. But then again, ladies and gentlemen, many of us live a kind of pseudo-human life, wherein, yes, we're using knowledge all the time, but at the same time, we're living as though we don't really know certain unchanging truths. Don't we, in a sense, all do that? Every time that we sin, if I may put it this way, we're acting as though we don't know that certain things are universally and always and everywhere wrong. We do know that, but we act as though we don't know that. Let's back up to just see a key point, and this is my kind of final wrap-up. <laughs> Nominalism undercuts, ladies and gentlemen, the human vocation of discovering and living according to an objective good. And that's going to be my main point tonight. Nominalism, and this is the main connection to the world we live in, nominalism undercuts the human vocation of discovering and living according to an objective good. How does it do that? What is good, ladies and gentlemen? How do we come to a concept of good? It's rooted in knowing that there are certain natures, certain natures that are designed a certain way for a certain kind of fulfillment. Think how we come to the notion of, of good by, for instance, looking at apple trees and seeing certain apple trees are becoming themselves. They're living according to apple tree nature. 
they're succeeding in being themselves. Goodness, ladies and gentlemen, is succeeding in being what you are according to your nature. This is what goodness is. It's succeeding in being what you are according to your nature. So what happens if there's no nature? In a word, ladies and gentlemen, we tend to get a couple of, of results. What do you get? One of the most obvious results that comes from nominalism, ladies and gentlemen, is skepticism. Often, th th those who first ended, were nominalists, they, they didn't necessarily intend this to come, but the history of philosophy bears this out very strongly, ladies and gentlemen, that if you, if you go the nominalist route as opposed to the realist route, you basically end up denying that the human intellect can really know anything other than just little passing individual things. A lot of the most famous names in, in philosophy, I would name them something like a David Hume. I mean, they, they end up holding that you can just have kind of picture succeeding picture. This is a profound skepticism. The human intellect loses its very stuff in these great minds, these philosophers who end up being skeptics. That tends to follow upon nominalism. Why? Because those natures, though the very food of the intellect, are gone. But the next major result, ladies and gentlemen, is that the will, then, once you have neutered the human intellect, all right, this, this is my big one. Once you neuter the human intellect, which is what nominalism does, the human will tends to take over. The human will tends to take over. This is a rather complex philosophical and theological story that I'm not particularly going to tell you, but the early nominalists tended to be voluntarists. The name voluntarist comes from the will. They gave a primacy to the will. They gave a primacy to the will going all the way up and into God. According to them, God's will comes first. God's will can do anything that it wants. God's will just freely created whatever it wanted. There are no set natures and things because God's will just, just painted whatever. This voluntarism holds that there are no set ways in God's own being that our natures are an imitation of. I'm going to fast forward then from that voluntarism back there. They still, in general, still had an ethics, those Christian nominalists, because they still hold that God taught you what was right and wrong. But they had cut out any real foundation for that. So now I'm going to fast forward to what t has tended to happen since the Middle Ages. Now we have no knowledge of nature as providing a basis for ethics. So we no longer have a reality to look to, to which to conform our wills. So, just as the intellect no longer, ladies and gentlemen, has those natures that it must conform to, I keep using the word conform, nominalism undercuts your intellect, having something to discover and to be conformed to, well, guess what? Now the will has nothing that it must conform itself to. Your will has nothing that absolutely demands that you will in accordance with it. Well, that's exactly, ladies and gentlemen, what your concupiscence and my concupiscence was looking for. Our will now tends to take over. It was, it was looking to have that kind of freedom. So what is the dominant theme in all, almost all of modern thought? The completely free and autonomous human will that can choose anything that it wants to because there is no objective reality that that will must be conformed to. Its moorings have been lost. Nominalism fundamentally undercut that there's an objective truth, 
those natures to which, first of all, the intellect must conform, and that then your will must conform. Quick quotation for you of Sartre, 20th century existentialist. I say this, is, this, is, this ultimately is nominalism having, having gone to its, to its worst but somewhat logical conclusion. Thus there is no human nature, says Sartre, middle of the second page, since there is no God to conceive it. Not only is man what he conceives himself to be, he is only what he will will himself to be. Ladies and gentlemen, in many ways, this is the world in which you live, where now you can be anything you will yourself to be, for your fundamental human calling is no longer to discover the truth that to which you must conform yourself, but note how it's, it's dressed up and it can seem very appealing. Now the human vocation is that you define yourself, the free autonomous will that must define itself. Very quickly, I'm just going to read you St. Thomas Aquinas here from his commentary on the Gospel of St. John and read you Genesis and give you my, my, my concluding statement. Here's, here's the other side of the picture. Here's the exact opposite of nominalism. This is where you have in God himself these unchanging ways of being that are what we were made according to. Real quick, this is St. John's commentary on the beginning of St. John's Gospel. If we carefully consider the words, all things were made through him, right, that's right in the beginning of chapter 1, all things were made through him, the word, we can clearly see that the evangelist spoke with the utmost exactitude. For whoever makes something must preconceive it in his wisdom, which is the form and pattern of the thing made. As the form preconceived in the mind of an artisan, an artist, hold that with you, is the pattern of the cabinet to be made. So God makes nothing except through the conception of his intellect, which is an eternally conceived wisdom, that is, the Word of God, the Son of God. Accordingly, it's impossible that he should make anything except through the Son. And so Augustine says in On the Trinity that the Word, second person of the Trinity, is the art full of the living patterns of all things. Isn't that an astoundingly beautiful notion? The second person of the Trinity, the Word, is the art full of the patterns of all things. Thus it is clear that all things which the Father makes, he makes through him. Another line right after that he says, so the Word, who is the art of the Father, full of living archetypes, Real quickly, I'm going to look at this cool notion. If, if you have an artisan who makes a cabinet, do all cabinets have something in common with one another, ladies and gentlemen? Yes, they have something in common with one another. What most obviously do they have in common with one another? They have common with one another that they all correspond to the understanding in the, in the mind of the cabinet maker, right? He got the cabinet maker. He makes all these cabinets according to his understanding. So what do they have in common with, with one another? They all correspond to that understanding that he has. What is St. Thomas's understanding of the natural world here? Referring back to the word of God. Everything in the natural world, all those natures, a tree originally is true, ladies and gentlemen, because its nature is according to the pattern in the mind of God, the second person of the Trinity, by which it was made. And so, that is the ultimate basis. Plato, in certain ways, came close to that. But when your mind, then, is conformed to knowing a tree, knowing human nature, it's conforming to a pattern that was ultimately there in the mind of God. Look at Genesis. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. 
and it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the cattle according to their kinds, and everything that creeps upon the ground according to its kinds. And God saw that it was good. Isn't that remarkable? How important it is there are certain kinds, universal kinds, according to which God made things. That was key in his gift of creation to us. All right, then, what do we have now? Coming to know the natures of things, ladies and gentlemen, is a way of coming ultimately to know about the divine nature. He has given us an intellect that in our humble trying to grasp the truths of reality to the extent that we can, we are on a project ultimately to have insight into the mind that is the archetype, the pattern from which these beautiful unchanging patterns came. So our discovery of them is ultimately a way through to God. And then further, the entire moral life, ladies and gentlemen, our entire project of the moral life is nothing more or less than of humbly trying to bring our life into conformity with the truth of who we are that has been given to us, a truth that we all share. And so if realism is true, as opposed to nominalism, what we are doing here together, ladies and gentlemen, what we are always doing at the ICC is trying to come to know certain truths about who we are, about the universe, all these rooted in God himself, which truths are the fulfillment of who we are, and when we will, in accordance with them, we become ourselves. Thank you for your attention. All right, so for question and answer, who's first? Uh, hi, Dr. Kepler. I'm really not trying to cause trouble. Um, Go ahead. It, I, I know that Pius X saw that there, this wasn't being taught or there was other, other uh, philosophies being taught in seminaries and that he tried to say that, uh, that scholasticism, is that Tom from Thomas Aquinas, should be the main philosophical area that the church teaches uh, in seminary. And, and so I'm wondering, is that, is that being held? Is that still the case in seminary that this, because it, it seems like this nominalism thing would, would cause a, a bunch of issues with ecumenism and, and um, re religious freedom and things like that. So. Well, uh, um, you, you ask a great question. I mean, the, um, I'm just going to note a couple quick things. It, in the old canon law, it was in the old canon law that um, seminary education had to be according to the basic principles of St. Thomas Aquinas. I don't, I, my understanding is it's not in canon law anymore, but it still is, it is very much encouraged by the church. There's a, there's a, great, there's a great line of, um, of popes um, emphasizing how important it is to use St. Thomas Aquinas as a kind of foundation of, of, the, of, of, of a formation of the mind to think clearly about 
reality, both philosophically and theologically. It doesn't mean that St. Thomas has all truths. It doesn't mean there's nothing can be learned from other uh, wisdom traditions. So I, I think that it is commonly still done. And in fact, I think in many ways there's been an improvement of uh, seminary education since things kind of fell apart somewhat in the immediate uh, aftermath of, of Vatican II and all, all the problems there, not being implemented the way it was supposed to be and so forth and so on. I, I think that there's a lot of seminary formation that is going on according to this, um, in the thought of St. Thomas. And uh, so, I mean, so th therein is the good news. Um, of course, you know, the, the flip side is the, the philosophy that is being taught more broadly Right? or the implicit, because in general philosophy itself is not studied very much, but implicit, and often unfortunately implicit in a lot of scientific approaches, is a nominalism. A lot of modern science, not all of modern science, but much of modern science, is fundamentally nominalist. And, that, and so, so there's, there's, there's a lot of influences towards a nominalism in the um, intellectual atmosphere right now. Great. We have a question coming online from David in Orlando who asks, what were the theological disputes in the Middle Ages that concerned nominalism versus realism? Well, um, I'm not exactly sure how, how to answer that. And I might be missing something there. I mean, the fundamental dispute was that issue itself. Um, in other words, if one is going to develop and hold the fundamental tradition that had been coming from the main teachers, uh, Plato and Aristotle, moving through the early theologians, the likes of St. Augustine, I mean, this type of thing was simply going to have to be answered. And so, I, if the question means what other issues are connected to it, I'd just say m most all issues will immediately be connected to it. It provides a kind of foundation of the worldview that would be connected to everything else. Is this why we hear pro-choice for abortion, a change in terms for the same thing? That's a, a, it's a very reasonable question. Um, God, you know, I, I take that as, as, as connecting to the whole, I mean, there's the whole uh, pro-life, the whole abortion question, and then we can connect that to the marriage question, um, gender. Um, I mean, I, I, I put it this way, and I think, it's, I think it's important. I mean, Professor Garland was joking when he said, you know, that you're going to say there's nominalism. Of course, what he, what he means is we'd recognize in our mind there's a failure here to understand certain basic things. I think it's, it's critically important apologetically, pastorally, to understand there's, there's so often a reason that when, when young people now have a question, well, could I perhaps change my gender? It, we need to understand that we, we need to be understanding of how such a thing can happen. The, the basic intellectual atmosphere is so bad that there isn't an understanding of the basic principles of human nature and of the ethics that's connected to this. And so we shouldn't be surprised and shocked that people who have not had the formation that we've had are, are on a very, very different playing field. And, and just in fairness to them, we need, we need to understand that, we, let me put it this way, we have to be careful how we reach out to them. So I'm just gonna say, say, put it to you, to you this way. I think we often do have to go back to basics and, and say something like, 
can we talk about or can I try to reach out to here to help you think in terms of you and I share something very important in common. You have a human dignity just as I have a human dignity. We all have a human dignity. We have to be able to go back and, and, and try to share our conviction in these things. And I think we should think more in terms of trying to share those insights that undergird than our response to the moral issues. It's fair, it, otherwise, this, I think this is part of the reason we don't make much progress in, in, in the pro-life thing, because we're not realizing that the, the difference we have with them is, is rooted in the difference way back down under here. And so how, how are we going to address the, the more root things, I think, is something that is worth our thinking about. Is the Platonian uh, theory related, the demiurge, related to what you were talking about, the truth, Dr. Karabak, the truth of, uh, to conform to the truth uh, regarding philosophy? And uh, he talked about that our democracy based on the demiurge, I mean, the, that God takes care of us. Uh, ergon means work, and demo, I look it up, means the uh, people in Greek. Is it this related to what you're talking about? Forgive me to be I have a I long really question. The first words you said I didn't understand. So I'm really sorry. In French, they say théorie platonicienne uh, of Plato. Plato, is this related to what you were talking about? The truth, to conform to the truth? It, it, it certainly is. I mean, pl the, the, I mean, Platonic truth is one of the great instances of there being a realism, right? And there's been a fundamental rejection of the realism all across the board, right? And so it, it absolutely is related. Yes, absolutely. Um, going a little bit further about um, trying to relate with other people, if um, somebody tries to bring forth the idea that not only is there not even a sense of universal, but the even act of seeking one is just a pseudo-intellectual way to hide somebody's personal prejudices and bigotry, how do you try to diffuse that, that clash of conflict and to say that there is more than just personal preferences, that is more than just the truth is just what I say it is? That's, uh, you're pointing to one of the deepest, deepest problems that there is. Um, how, how to do that? My main answer is going to be there. It's, it's going to be by setting a good example. I mean, I mean, there's a number of directions we could go, but my quick, my quick thought is going to be this. To show them that it's not a matter of personal preference. Now, I mean, again, how to do that? There is no magic argument here. I mean, that, that it's always a very... Um, I'm, I'm not going to say it's a strong argument, but pe that it is an often used argument by people who, who find a position like yours and mine to be very threatening and just say, well, that, that's just your opinion. There, there is no immediate, obvious response to the, well, you're just saying that because you want to. Right? I mean, interestingly, many people do just say things because they want to. That actually is, in fact, the fruit of nominalism, right? It lays the groundwork for people to be able to just say things are as they want them to be. And that's fun fundamentally, Sarge, you're, you're going to construct yourself. So interestingly, we are holding for a position that is the humble position, that is the position of our place is to discover the truth. So I, I, I'm just, my, my main suggestion here is, I mean, I mean yes, look, there are, there are arguments that one could make like, look, in all these other areas of your life, 
you don't th you are willing to grant that there's certain objective things that you need to conform yourself to. So why would there not be objective truth here? I mean, there 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 are things that we can do like that. But fundamentally, I'm going to say I, I I want us to take the approach of trying to set a good example and trying to have a, a kind of as it were. Let me put it this way: the kind of community spirit of we are going to reach out to you and invite you to join us in a difficult projects that we're on. We, again, we show ourselves to be like St. Thomas. We show ourselves to be, to a certain extent, still searching. We're not just parachuting in with this kind of bomb of truth that we're going to drop on them. We are also on, on a search, and we have a fundamental conviction that all of us together are called to discover this truth, which will be our own fulfillment. Our own, but it's a fulfillment we share. I mean, I, I wish I had, had said that a little bit more in, in how I ended. I mean, the great thing is when we're, when we're studying this truth, we're studying something that is true about all of us. This is what most of all unites us. Life ultimately is about relationship and communion. This, these are the things that unite us. So in any case, again, particularly I think in this day and age, it's going to be by our living that way. Dr. Kudebeck, we've said that Speaking of Plato's universals, obviously they don't exist in another world. At the same time, we're saying that all things were made through Christ. Right. Isn't he the model of all things? And in a sense, that universal, in a, not in another world, in our world, but separate, apart, and distinct, really existing? How yes. do you square this tooth? I say yes. <laughs> in, 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 in other words, Imagine, imagine the early Christians coming upon Plato, who says that there are these unchanging ways of being that everything in our world is an imitation of and a participation of, and it's, and it's out there. And I mean, it, I mean, this is one of those things where because Plato is in so many ways a sympathetic thinker and someone who, who's trying to go the right direction, you want to just kind of say, oh my goodness, you were just so close. Because it's just, if you just take his forms and you put it in the mind of God, that, then, then all of a sudden there are amazing kind of, whoa, he was, he was profoundly right. And so, I mean, we don't want to pretend of, well, that's what he meant anyway. I mean, no. I mean, he, he didn't see it. And so, I mean, we, we have to be honest. It's, it's different. And, and, and it is a pretty big difference. You can't say, oh, so we'll just kind of fix that. We'll just airbrush it into Christianity. Because it is a difference, but at the same time, particularly given he's such a good thinker, I think it's, it's very fair to say he, he, was, he was coming in his own humility. I think in many ways he was like Aristotle, he's like St. Thomas in that way. Again, certainly made mistakes, but he had discovered something that was fundamentally right. They've got to be kind of unchanging, secure somewhere, and he's right. They are unchanging and secure in the mind of God in which everything participates, which makes us be what we are. So that, that's why I say yes. Thank you very much, Thank Dr. Yeah. Kudabak. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155.
and may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.